welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, in front of his own brilliant studio audience, Jerry Springer. Hey, thank you. Jerry. Oh, back again. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way, speaking of back again, uh, we had uh, Short and Company on as a musical guest last week. We love them. They've been on before. Uh, representative of the band, Jeremy, is uh, with us again. We asked him to come back. And hey, so Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. From Moorhead. He's down in Moorhead, Kentucky. And uh, we're going to be talking to Jeremy in a few minutes. Uh, hey, Jerry. There is a topic that is, I don't know, befuddling the country is maybe too soft because it's way more important than that. And that is race. A lot of people think that this country has never been more divided over race. Can you imagine that? It's 2021. Yeah. Civil War was in 1865-ish. Yeah. And here we are, 2021, so grappling with this, trials of of people who have shot people during disturbances and got a situation that I think you're going to speak to, but how in the heck do we get out of this racial divide in America? Well, two items caught my attention this week, unrelated yet both connected to the issue of race, which frankly, with the possible exception of Trump, is the most covered subject of our weekly podcast rants. The most obvious story was the murder trial of those three Georgia white men who chased, cornered, and shot and killed an unarmed black man, Armad Arbery, who was running through or jogging through the neighborhood in the middle of the day. And then there was the story about the students at Traverse City High School in Michigan, a community 90% white who started a Snapchat group on the internet called Slave Trade. Their chatter littered with such statements as all blacks should die and quote, let's start another Holocaust. And they started selling off their classmates, I assume virtually, for money. When the school administration found out about this, they immediately set up a social equity task force, drafting resolutions encouraging the teaching of equality and inclusion and condemning racism, hate speech, and racial violence. Certainly a good first step. But perhaps unsurprisingly, the school board was inundated with outraged parents claiming that this resolution against racism is anti-Christian, anti-white. We can't be teaching our kids this stuff about inclusion. It'll just make them feel bad. And as I said, another week of stories reminding us that racism is still alive and well across the nation. But what made me want to talk about this seemingly unrelated stories today is listening to the opening statements in the trial of these three white guys who shot and killed Armand Arbery. You see, the defense is not arguing that they didn't do it. They admit it. And in fact, their videos of the incident that the social media two months later ran, which, by the way, caused this entire matter to come to light. Their defense 
is that they assumed this black guy was up to no good. After all, there had been break-ins in the neighborhood. So the defense was arguing to the jury, 11 of the 12 who were white, that's an issue in itself, that even though they didn't see him breaking in, he could have been that guy. So they grabbed their guns, pistol and shotgun, chased him down in their trucks, cornered him, trapped him, and shot him in the chest, which obviously killed him. The defense played to this almost all-white jury, believing that, of course, they would understand that what these guys were thinking and feeling. And as a legal strategy for the defense, you can understand why the lawyers would argue this. But isn't that sadly the truth? That without blinking, our white-dominated society raised and culturally taught to at some level believe yeah, there's a black guy running through, quote, our neighborhood. He must be up to no good. Be afraid. Lock the doors. Grab your guns. Even if we individually wouldn't do that, we are not shocked that other people are thinking that way. If there were white guys running through the neighborhood, would you really grab your guns, chase them down in your trucks, shoot them at close range? I mean, do they not have 911 in Brunswick, Georgia? So what's the point of talking about all this? Nothing I've said is something you don't already know for as long as you've been alive, for at least since you've seen or read To Kill a Mockingbird and Mississippi Burning. And I guess my point is this. At the age of almost 78, I now am sadly convinced that we are not going to change the minds or attitudes of enough grown-ups in our country to cleanse this racial cancer from our soul. Not that all whites hate blacks, but that too many just don't care enough about the obstacles and hurdles placed in their way to equality. It's a useless battle unless, unless we recognize that our only hope to be what our constitution, at least since the 1860s, what our constitution said we should and would be. Our only hope is to turn to our kids who have not yet been poisoned by our history to make sure starting at the very beginning of their schooling, because we can't guarantee that they'll get this education from their parents as evidenced by the growing protests at our local school board meetings, that our kids get to know the evil of racism, the wonder of inclusion, fairness, and brotherhood, and maybe, just maybe, our future generations of Americans will be more inclined to fix what's wrong and unfair in terms of our laws, our policies, and our behaviors, and in so doing, more inclined to extend a helping hand instead of a 12-gauge shotgun. That is why the single most important fight in our current civil rights war is to win the battle in our schools and before our local school boards. That is today's Selma. So now. Jerry, and I'm sorry, Gene, I don't mean to cut you off at all. No, go. And I always agree with you, Mr. Springer. I would say nine times out of 10. And I think what you said was very, I, I, I agree with you to the most part. However, I would challenge your generation, you and Jean and my mom and dad and people of that generation to be, to not be the stereotype. 
we can lay it at the door of the next generation. And I look at it with my, you know, with my stepdaughter, even with my generation. Um, I, I agree with you to some extent. Yes. I, I think that it's going to be hard to change the minds and souls, but when you go home to grandma, grandpa, and you sit down and you're having these conversations, I challenge those in your generation to not be the stereotype that just like old man waves, you know, fist at cloud and just gets mad about things that he or she feels they can't change because you can, because what is echoing in homes is every bit as important as what is echoing at schools. I think that's a great point you make. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. I'm just not as hopeful uh, That's what you passed. Maybe to us, it's my. Sim- it's our turn now. It's it's my generation's time to be hopeful, and we yes. take from you yeah. and pass it on to our kids. But you guys have to not be the stereotype of old angry men. We drill that into our grandkids <laughs> every day. I know, and, and, right? But I don't think we're the majority. I no, mean, maybe not. it's because I'm living in Sarasota. But I'm telling you, when I when we drive to the grocery or whatever, and we see people standing on the corner with their Trump flags, their Confederate flags, their dude, we're in Kentucky stuff. here, man. What do you think yeah. we see? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, if we're counting on these people to change their mind, I'm not optimistic. Yep. But if we insist that starting in the first grade, that yep. we do get accurate American history, what slavery did, how Mm -hmm. long we've continued with this, then I think maybe they'll be more open to change the policies, change the laws and change behavior. But I, you're hundred percent right. What you said, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, let me add one element, Megan, that I think we need. And I also agree with you. Um, I spent a life, I spent a career and I'm retired from this, but I spent a career uh, being hired by the Cincinnati Public Schools to envision, because I was envisioning, and once they figured out that I was envisioning, they took a chance on me, God bless them, way back in the 1970s, to start, and I did two of these schools in a career, three of them total, that brought kids from two races together. These were called voluntary desegregation models. They were very innovative high school designs that drew black kids and white kids who came because of the unique design of the high school. It was a freer environment. It had a more practical approach to teaching. They came black kids and white kids together. And Megan, to your point, they, and this is the thing I would add too, you you not only have to make sure that the history is taught correctly, you've got to bring white kids and black kids into the school for the day, for 220 days of the year to sit side by side and go into the lunchroom together Uh and to get to know each other. And that helps break down the stereotypes. Let me tell you one last thing. I went, I'm not going to name this school, but I went to a Catholic high school on the east side of Cincinnati And in 1961, it was 100% white. They utterly failed me in my education in one key component. And I went back to my high school six months ago. I won't tell you all how this happened, but I had to do a little bit of kind of bad publicity threatening to get, and I got sat down with the, 
the power people at the high school and said, it's 2021 and the complexion of this school is pretty much the way it was in 1961. Yep. How in the hell can that be? I went that, to my high school. Yep. I graduated in 1998 with 600 girls in one school. There were literally two African-American girls and seven um, exchange students from Bosnia. And that was pretty much, it's pretty similar t- today. All right. So here's the problem. If, if we can't in my God, no pun intended, a Catholic school mm-hmm. where Jesus said, and whether you think he's the Messiah, and I'm not now joking, I'm going to make a point of history, whether you think he's the, a Messiah or a significant prophet, his message was this, whatever you do for the least of my brothers and sisters that you do unto me. So that's his message. So you can't have a school and, and you can't use the argument, well, um, in 1961, it was an all-white neighborhood. Well, guess what? In 2021, it's not an all-white neighborhood anymore. It's 15% people of color. At least, for God's sake, have 10 to 15% uh, people of color, whether it's mixed race, African-American, Latino, Hispanic. So back to my original point, if we don't have, even from religious schools, an effort to integrate them in 2021 mm-hmm. so the kids are experiencing one another because my career proves to me that when kids are together they like and hate each mother each other <laughs> on a bell-shaped curve in other words it's not because of race they like some kids and they don't like some other kids but if they're together every day race isn't the issue it's like yeah yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's others, human things. It's okay to hate somebody, but yet because don't, they're a jerk, not because of the color of their skin. Or, yeah. or you don't like how they dress or whatever. I don't know, but it's not the color of their skin. So until we face integration in America, whether it's done voluntarily or whether that's God forbid the way they did it in Boston in the 70s with forced busing in Cincinnati was trying to not do that, and they did you know, this version called voluntary desegregation, but I'm here to tell you, it worked. Oddly enough, in 1965, when my wife graduated from a Cincinnati public high school, because we've looked at her yearbooks over the years, 40% of her class was African-American, probably 60% was Caucasian. Well, that's it. That's a pretty good mix of people. Yeah. Mostly white, mostly black, or vice versa. That was so. Even back then, there were some schools. I don't know what Forest Hills was like, Jerry, in 1961. What was it like? Did it was there integration in Forest Hills in New York, in Queens, New York, or not? Yeah, there was. It wasn't a lot, but there was a significant amount because, um, you know, they were neighborhood schools, and in New York, at least within the city, the neighborhoods were reasonably, not perfectly, but reasonably uh, integrated. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, once you get out on Long Island, that's different. But within the city, within a 10 block area, 
you're going to find different nationalities, different languages, different. That's just the makeup of New of New York. So specifically, New York didn't have the particular problem that, for example, Boston had yeah. and Chicago. Chicago is a very integrated city, but it's integrated only if you count the number of neighborhoods and say, oh, good, 20 percent or 30 percent or 40 percent of Chicago is black. But they all live in the one neighborhood. In the south, yeah. Yeah, the south side. So, yep. uh, But it's just like anything else. It's just like adults. Children are just like adults that way. Once you have someone in your life that things apply to, that are applicable to, things become more real. It's just like John McCain and his daughter. It's just once you see and live with things that are outside of your norm and you become normalized to them, then it's much easier to incorporate. And until like, it's not just schools, it's neighborhoods, it's the whole nine yards yeah. until we're able to open up and, and do that. And you have to do it by choice or yeah. by force sometimes, Gene, you know, in order to get that, <laughs> yeah. because we don't want to go out of our comfort zone. We like things that look like us and sound like us and talk like us. It makes us feel comfy. Yeah. yeah. Well, except well, I wonder, and maybe I'm uh, naive in this hope that increasingly Younger people will value and yes. even beyond that, seek diversity. Yep. They will see that as a positive that they will enjoy. I, I know I see it. College yep. kids, man, they people want to move into the city. They want to hang out in clubs and socialize and hear music that is black music and white music. They, it, I, I've seen it. I've seen yep. it. Well, most of it. I relate to that. I, my, my own name, I live in this condo community in Northern Kentucky. And I joke with some of my African-American friends about, ah, it's a gated community up there, Gene, you know, you need to pass it. No, 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 no. I have neighbors up and down my street that are African-American, gay couple across the street, uh, a traditional uh, Islamic family down the street. This, my neighborhood, and it, the reason is it's real close to downtown Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. It's a proximity to it's an urban neighborhood, even though it's across the river in Northern Kentucky. Diversity is something my wife and I seek. Seek out. Yep. We seek it. Yep. And yep. if others did that, then we're going to get over this hump. So I think it's not just changing minds. And good reminder from you, Megan, that you know, we can't, we older people can't perpetuate stereotypes, but well, Jerry, that's why you moved to Sarasota, right? To to stop those stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they always know where I am. <laughs> they, yeah. Oh, I'm the one in the neighborhood. The <laughs> one. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's worth another podcast uh, someday and we'll deal with this. But yeah. I'm really interested. Well, one, it's two quick things. The, the first is the culture is the way that it's changing. Yeah. Uh, the music and sports is how the younger generation, because just as you said, Gene, uh, white kids today are listening to what we used to refer to, uh, well, you know, hip hop or quote, right. black music, urban yeah. music. I mean, yeah. that all of a sudden, you know, every white kid wants to be black in terms of the music. Uh, it happened first with sports that started to help integrate, you know, all of a sudden your heroes, the pictures you had on your wall were African-American athletes in white neighborhoods. So that that is happening. What I don't know, and I want to be educated on it. Remember when we, Gene, when we were at, when I was active in running for office and, you, we, you know, we right. used to always hang together. 
Right. Sunday mornings, invariably, we go to black churches. Right. And and I don't know when it suddenly hit me. If this is this all the same religion, how come some churches, uh, Christian churches, are black and others are white? It's yeah, the it's same amazing. religion. You it's know, amazing. I mean that. Totally. When did that you know, when be a did podcast, the church Gary. say? When that. did the church say? Why are there black church Catholic churches and white Catholic churches? Who made that decision that? This is a good idea. God wants us to be split up. How how is that justified? Now, there may be an answer to that that I don't know. I'm not trying to be a smart ass here. I'm just saying. I think it's Megan's point about people go to their comfort zone and people came, you know, the, the, the Catholic church. And it's not just the Catholic church. Religions are famously I'm painting with a pretty broad brush here. There are plenty of exceptions to this, but too often religions are organized around the choice of the church you go to. The churches are in the neighborhood you choose to live in. The neighborhoods are therefore all separated by race. And that tracks back to my parents. Mm-hmm. And we're talking now the you know early part of the of the 20th century. And it just lives on. And by the way, take for example, to go back to the Catholic Church, I'm probably more familiar with this. They're reorganizing the churches in Cincinnati under the archbishop mm-hmm. of the Cincinnati Archdiocese, which stretches all the way up into Dayton. And they are shrinking parishes by 70% to do that because they're running out of priests because not enough people are becoming priests caused by a lot of things down, get down in the weeds about all that. But they don't, so they're having to shrink by 70% the number of parishes. So to their credit, they're saying, well, let's start to combine these churches and let's then mix some of these African-American neighborhood churches with these Caucasian neighborhood churches. And the and Latino the, and the, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the, good answer. then the pushback started. So they're in the gathering public reaction phase. I've been following this in this Cincinnati Archdiocesan area. And they're now, and it's often some of the African-American parishes are saying, and and picture this, if you're an African-American and you say, wait a minute, they're picking off the, you know, one black church here and putting it in with a white church where those people will go from having their own church and their own liturgy, and their own style of music, and they'll be mixed into some big white parish where they'll be, it'll all dissipate. Yep. Yeah. And so they're saying, let us hang together so we can protect our culture. Uh Oh, now that creates a real conundrum, philosophically and socially. Because there's the fear of like gentrification of of religion and and it being whitewashed essentially and, and yeah being, yeah it's complicated but that's I think the yeah. answer and you're that's right, a good can, answer no that's a good answer that's yeah, we can dig into this more another time yeah. but God, you know what we should do though is we should have a podcast and we should talk <laughs> about these things <laughs> oh, <an> <laughs> maybe we'll contact a company called ambient studios and they maybe get yeah like music or something don't yeah. I mean, <laughs> like this idea <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of that, 
Speaking of, how about a segue there, Mr. Galvin? Um, anyway, <laughs> we are happy to welcome back tonight, Mr. Jeremy Short from Short and Company. Welcome back, Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. guys. Good to be here. How are we? Jeremy. Doing great. Oh, Doing good. Great. Thanks for joining us again. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, last time um, we heard trance. So what are you guys up to? What are, I know everybody's kind of coming out of the slump that was uh, COVID. So what are what are your uh, short term plans? Uh, uh, um. we <laughs> and we're just trying to get back out on the road a little bit, little by little, just taking baby steps in the in the kitty kitty part of the pool, you know, in the kitty pool. Yep. <laughs> just a little bit. You know, we got our floaties on right now. It's and, every, uh, I think everybody does, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're just trying to play it, play it one day at a time and see how it oh. goes, man. Just hopefully we can get back into somewhat more of a normal year. Yeah. In the coming year. Cool. Well, we're really excited to have you and you are talking to us from Moorhead, Kentucky, correct? That's right. All right. I have a couple friends that went to the University of Moorhead. It's a fun area down there. So what what do you find yourself doing? If you weren't with us tonight, what would you be doing down there in Moorhead? Oh, you know, probably uh, starting a fire on my property somewhere, something like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> Gene does the same fire. thing, but the HOA has asked him to stop. Well, stop yeah, doing I that. mean, they'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> they'll do that. They, 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 uh, they have limits, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> laws That's or what, awesome. residential neighborhood. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, well, we tonight have we idea. have the uh, I believe Fast Eddie is the song that we're going to be listening to. Can you tell us a little bit about this song? That's right, Fast Eddie, and uh, it's about a guy who just can't get his stuff together. So to speak, just keep just keeps messing up. <laughs> just just keeps messing up and making bad decisions. And this particular version we recorded uh, is a video taken by Tom Wickstrom, a photographer and a journalist around Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, this is out of Floyd, Virginia, at a festival called Floyd Fest on the Pink Floyd Garden Stage. Some kind of weird Floyd inception happening there. That's yeah. cool. This was a really fun festival and a really fun night. Awesome. So this is Short and Company with Fast Eddie. Oh, 
So we're back here with Jeremy. Jeremy, tell us again where we can find more of your music and more information about Short and Company. Uh, we are most places that you can stream music. You can find us on Spotify. You can download our album on iTunes. You can go to SoundCloud and Bandcamp, Bandcamp and places like that. If you want to keep up with where we're at, we typically update our Facebook as often as we can with new shows. And our Instagram stays pretty updated. And uh, yeah. We're out there That's in the internet. Very cool. Happen. Well, while you're surfing that side of the internet, you can ver- visit our side of the internet. Uh, check out Tales Tunes and Tom Fullery on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes, anywhere you get your stuff. You can find more of Jeremy's stuff on our website and you can learn more about each one of us. Uh, make sure you give us a five-star review so that the internets know that we're out there and that you're listening. So until next time, we will be here waiting for you. And until then, we're going to have Jerry Springer take us out on Down by the Riverside. I'm going to let down my heavy load Down by the Riverside 
Thank you so much. Oh, man.